Seamless transition. <laughs> the beauty of the podcast, baby. Yeah, does um, not matter. All this is staying in. <laughs> uh, let me try and give me, give me an edit point. I'll shut up. Yeah, so I mean, I, I really do. Th- no, I don't know what, I'm, what we're talking about. <laughs> um, edit points. Right, uh, um. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Once again aboard Beef Station for another episode as we drift through space and time at the speed of sound. I'm Oscar. Andrew. Let's get started. Yeah, let's go. What, what are, are we, we doing, boy? Oh, what's that? Did you hear that? Guys! I did. What? Whoa. Guys! Hello? Guys, can you... What is that? Can you, can you hear that? Open the airlock? Is that someone? Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Ja- oh thank Jesus God. Christ. Jason? Yeah, I, I don't the- know what happened. How long have you been back there? Are we in space? I just... Like I was at Macca's, I went looking for the bathroom, and <laughs> I don't know, I think I took the wrong left, and now man, I've passed 100,000 miles, and I'm feeling pretty scared <laughs> up here, guys. I told man, you we- that we shouldn't have parked in McDonald's before Fuck. leaving with the spaceship, because uh, people are going to screw it up, especially well, considering that this spaceship from the outside looks exactly like a McDonald's. It does, it looks exactly <laughs> like a Macca's. What a ridiculous design in hindsight. <laughs> this is... <laughs> so, uh... It looks like any, a portal uh, from the outside. <laughs> <laughs> and from the inside. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, welcome, welcome aboard, Jason. I don't think I've seen you since shitting everywhere. <laughs> I haven't seen this fucking guy since high school. Yeah, that's Man. right. Yeah, that's what is, what of ours. that is a long time ago. We well, are old. Well, yeah. I don't want to. I feel it. Yeah, I don't want to reveal any <laughs> any more detail <laughs> than we have to. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to put you in an awkward position, Jason. We're about to start a podcast, and it's I mean, oh, I? the no. only way that you could possibly be an asset to this recording is if you'd you'd seen. Uh, Mortal Engines, executive produced by Peter Jackson, released in 2018. Have you? Mm. I, I have actually. Yes, that's the. Oh, did you? Philip Reeve book, I believe. We what were an incredible coincidence. I that spo- is <laughs> astounding. <laughs> it beggars belief, honestly. <laughs> I, I suppose the airlock porthole has a perfect yeah. little peering view right to our little our little beef TV. So you must have been e- <laughs> yeah. eavesdropping yeah, during our exactly screening last night. Exactly what heard happened. And seen. <laughs> well, I suppose while you're here, before we before we kick you out into the vacuum of space, do you want to do you want to record your last moments on the podcast? Well, uh, <laughs> given that tempting offer, I don't really see how I can possibly refuse. Yeah. Well, welcome aboard. Uh, listeners, as you may have guessed, we have a guest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's J- the sound he makes when he's proud of himself. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's um, good to be up here. Mm. Yeah, we went to we went to high school with Jason, and we figured um, this Mortal Engines movie's coming out. Mm. Mortal Engines is coincidentally actually a book that we all had to study in like year seven. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, think I didn't read the book, but I definitely studied it. We, well, I think, <laughs> I think you made a mistake there because yeah. I quite enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. you big dumb nerds. So, <laughs> one thing that um, that I think kicked off this this guest appearance is that I, I've seen that you've done a fair bit of like writing little synopsis reviews on Facebook and that yeah. type of thing, right? So it's sort of a similar similar wheelhouse, but a different medium. Yeah, exactly. So I guess um, by way of an introduction that we have um, quite notably left off a few of our guest episodes. Yeah, I feel like the last <laughs> couple of guest episodes, it's been like, and there's this fucking guy sitting in the corner. Let's get to it, Andy yeah. boy. Sorry, Callum. <laughs> <laughs> Riddled with guilt for um, the rest of the episode. But we thought, like, let's let's ask. So can you, and I'm putting you on the spot here, but um, Go for keep it. in mind the wonder of this medium is that you don't <laughs> need to have an answer straight away. Um, so what are your, what's your favorite movie? And then uh, overall, I guess. And then like one from recent times that people might have, have seen. 
Right. So yeah, they could okay. just be ones that you really like. <laughs> it's uh, I, I don't think this is going to be a popular choice. I can't rest unless it's actually your favorite. <laughs> yeah. So my, I think the film that I would go back and watch again and again, my favorite film of all time, which I don't think is a great film, uh, is Master and Commander Far Side of the World. <laughs> right. Okay. Which, I don't even know I, if I've heard of it. I don't think that. I've ever seen it. No, it's that Russell Crowe movie with yeah, the boats. Yeah, uh, Russell Crowe, Paul Bettany. It's Jesus. Uh, based on... That's a deep uh, cut. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's based on the, the Master and Commander novels, yep. which are obviously set in the wooden don't ship. Know, don't have to area. explain the Master Commander <laughs> novel stars. Thank you. Yep. Uh, and it's, I mean, I've always been quite interested in wooden ship era <laughs> stuff. Oh, yeah, I, I, I just like to sit at home and think about tall wooden ships. Uh, but it's, it's a, I think it's a really nicely done movie to really show not just the battles and the people, like, shooting each other with shitty handguns. But also the wooden ships they're standing on. Exactly. Right. That is exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, good, great. Well, then... Yeah, and why? All the, why all the, give me that uh, that annoyed look? If I... <laughs> all, all the ocean and that with like all the yeah. wetness and so on. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, you should you should check out uh, Pirates of the Caribbean Four. You'd love it. Oh oh god, don't remind me. <laughs> it's got wooden ships and water. What else could you want, Jace? At, at least it was infinitely better than the fifth one. Which <laughs> I, I think know there we was shall... a fifth one. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, you let's know it's going to be a good that. sequel when like parts of the core cast from the first three start like. Here we go. Jumping ship. <laughs> or rocking up uh, oh. drunk continually on set to the point that it really looks like uh, Johnny Depp was just someone dressed up as Johnny Depp <laughs> while <laughs> drunk and performing a badly written fan fiction. Yeah, have you yeah. seen the first one? It's like, boom! <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty incredible that he's so in character that he vomited on himself immediately before the scene was supposed to go to action. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Props to being a method actor, I guess. Yeah, that's the thing about Johnny Depp. I feel like I haven't seen him in any film. We saw this said this recently about the Grindelwald thing. Mm. I haven't seen him in many films where he's just where he's not just playing some big dumb fucking character, um, which, which is really a shame, I think, because for, yeah. for a while there, Johnny Depp was, I think, a very well respected, quite proficient actor. Like, I haven't oh, seen him in any of those films. Like, I know he was in like I think it's is it called Picture Window or Secret Garden or Hidden Window or Hidden Garden? Something about a window and a garden. I and would shit. believe it if yeah. you looked a little bit more confident. I would believe it. <laughs> That's the trick to this audio medium that you haven't quite perfected yet. Um, yeah, and so, and so we we figured um, we know Jason from from high school. We did this book. Why not ask him back onto the podcast mm. uh, for the Mortal Engines movie? Um, now, what I didn't, what I had assumed going into the movie, and most I'm not going to lie, most of the reason why I was excited to see it is because um, is because I thought it was a Peter Jackson movie. Turns out it's fucking not. Yeah, it was direct- produced by him, but yeah. it was not directed by it's directed him. So by he some- really didn't have that much creative input. Well, so that's the thing. So it's directed by some dude named Christian Rivers, and I was sort of trying to work out what was going on with that today. Apparently, back in the 80s, um, when Peter Jackson produced like his first movie, or like directed his first movie, sorry, he got this like fan letter uh, from some high school kid who said, oh, I love your stuff. Check it out. Wait, my- wait, let me guess who that was. Christian Rivers. <gasps> Jason, you're reading over my shoulder. Yeah, I, I, look, I looked <laughs> no, at his yeah. notes. So like as a high school, as a high school student, Christian Rivers, um, like email, send a letter to Peter Jackson, be like, oh, I love your stuff. Check out all my drawings of dragons and shit. And then when uh, Peter Jackson went to go storyboard some later movies, I think Brain Dead, 
he, he he was reading like uh, Philip Reeves' lovely novel <laughs> Mortal Engines and thought, you know, this really reminds me of those dragons of those kids. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, the short story is apparently he he was working on some movie and invited this kid who was now like a you know mid early twenties or whatever to come back and like do storyboards for him. And then ever since then, on every movie Peter Jackson's done, this Christian Rivers dude has been in some way involved, and he's worked his way up from being like a storyboard artist to like a visual effects supervisor to being a second unit director, and I think some of the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings movies. Oh, right. So, so he's not just some random fucking dude. Um, they work together it is quite a lot. Those cases where, like, um, I'm thinking of like John John Wick, where yeah. the director has been kind of been on a film set for a yeah. really long time, but, but hasn't this is been their in first the kind chair. of go being in the yeah being in the pilot's chair of of being a director, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's what I'm. Man, I can't think of the exact example, but there's some some, <laughs> some sort of creative endeavor that was released in in recent memory in the last whereby 30 to 40 years the person helming this creative endeavor was in some way involved with the person originally doing it. Yeah. Well, it can that can only be maybe one or two things <laughs> that's happened in <laughs> I mean, I'll make I'll make it up and say it was this that new Beatles remix album that came out recently right. where um George Martin produced you know, all the original Beatles sound well with yeah, most exactly. of our listeners. Of course, yeah, most yeah. of our listeners are me later, so we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> um George Martin produced all the original Beatles albums in the sixties, of course, Oscar, as you remember. Um and then um as he sort of You're gonna like leave notes to yourself. Yeah, later. yeah, yeah. Um dude, you always remember to buy milk. Do not milk Toilet paper. <laughs> um, in the eighties and nineties, Strelock kill George Strelock. Martin was this like huge. I'm going to power through it. Hugely um, uh, famous, influential, hot demand producer, but he was losing his hearing and he was kind of going deaf. Right, and he wanted to. That's that as- generally what happens when one loses their hearing. Nah, <laughs> mm. um, he was losing his hearing and he was looking for it everywhere, Jason. Um, <laughs> and so he um, he would like bring his son in to sort of be his ears and sort of be like, hey, Dad. And the fucking guitars up a bit, um, right? And so by the time uh, Charles Martin was like producing his first Beatles shit, he'd basically been working with George Martin and had been like trained by him for twenty years. And so it's in in the same way, I imagine this Christian Rivers guy has probably probably a lot of Peter Jackson stuff has sort of rubbed off on him a bit. Um, all his preferences his... for like how many sugars in his coffee, that kind of thing. <laughs> all that sort of stuff, exactly. Um, and so I guess I was kind of hoping that. It would be as good as Lord of the Rings. And straight out of the gate... I think we can safely say uh, that uh, it was. Resounding success. <laughs> yeah, I don't right. know. Well, so, hey, look. The first... And I looked up a lot of reviews about this movie. To be fair to it, yeah. the first 10 minutes were probably as good as some of the strongest points in Lord of the Rings. And that's what really? a lot of the critical that, acclaim says. That was very not my experience. I thought, I, the, I thought like the effects were fantastic. That so, initial chase sequence. Okay, yes, between, certainly. Yeah. So I think we should explain what the movie's about. Um, Jace, do you want to give, give a shot at explaining what this movie actually yeah, so, is? So in a uh, dystopian post-apocalyptic future, uh, after a, a massive war <laughs> that has uh, destroyed... Most cities on the planet, the yeah. remaining ones, have uprooted themselves and turned themselves into basically giant, like, caterpillar tread tanks. Yeah, so, like, that- city-sized tanks on wheels that travel through this, like, wreck- like nuclear wasteland. Exactly. So, yeah. at the core of the film, we have London, uh, which, uh, for those of you who recall your geography, is in England. City in England. Uh, big city in England. It's the one with the big wheels? Yeah. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? London in New York, America. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Though, uh, 
Who knows what happened to that one? Maybe they'll bring that uh, up in the sequel. London 2, baby! Why do, why do they do it? You know, instead of like New Holland, why is it called like Holland 2? <laughs> I mean, that that I is a know. valid question for the philosophers and historians you know among what? us, I'm sure. South Wales 2! Fuck it! York 2! <laughs> York 2! All right, so so bringing it back to the film for a moment. No one's, no one's ever done that bit before. <laughs> I I haven't heard it before. I was quite happy with it. Right in if you right in if you've ever heard anyone make that joke well. before. So anyway, London runs around on great big caterpillar tracks, hunting right. down smaller cities, also on wheels because that's how cities work. Uh, yeah. and then basically stripping them down for parts in order like to swallows keep... them up in these big jaws and exactly. melts them in their furnace for fuel. Yep. Uh, so it can in going. the midst of you know cities all running around eating each other, uh, we have a young bo- a young man by the name of Tom Natsworthy who yeah. works at the London. Uh, he's part of the Historians Guild, <laughs> uh, and he basically uh, is trying to find lost artifacts of yeah. times long past. That is our <laughs> age in because the cities that they are trashing. When they say like, times long past, they're yeah. talking about uh, this is like a thousand years after our time. Yeah, and so, so like they find like a toaster, and he's like, <gasps> a Sunbeam D fifty with double slice action and a spring loaded trigger or whatever. And they're like, this is the best toaster I've ever seen, Tom, and shit like that. Like it's <laughs> and it's <laughs> like a piece of shit. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a lot of like I think a lot of the gags are like, oh, imagine giving a shit about a toaster. Yeah. And like, I think like they walk through the, um, they walk through the, the museum and they're like, oh, not our like, uh, gods of the ancient statues and there's these fucking minion statues that <laughs> that actually yeah. killed me. Cause in the I books, actually didn't mind it. in the books, that's Mickey Mouse. In the books, they're, they're, they're like oh, talking geez, about relics. Right, well, they yeah. couldn't fucking get the mouse, could they? No, it was just the most revolting, like, <laughs> like this whole movie is a large metaphor for capitalism. Yeah. Take a shot. <laughs> and the fucking fact that they definitely couldn't get the licensing for what was originally written in the book. So instead, minions put their hand up and actually, were like, yep. you can use us. I actually didn't That's mind gross. the idea that like minions have been fucking like a, a, the scourge of society for the last few years. I like the idea that more lynchers like, they're our gods now. Yeah, I but that was, was what cool. was funny about uh, Mickey Mouse. Yeah, but no one gives it, a fuck about Mickey Mouse ludicrous. now. But he was also worshipped even as recently as when the book came out. And the idea of like, <laughs> the idea <laughs> that they misinterpreted... <laughs> the point is I'm saying the reference is dated and you're like, yeah, but it wasn't dated when the book came out. I know. Well, yeah, 13 fucking years ago or whatever it was. That's a long time ago, boy. Yeah, no. My point is that it was, it was fulfilling a completely... Mickey Mouse fulfills a very different function in our society and even our society when this book came out to what minions do today. I like, think it was making like, a different point. I thought it was like making fun of us. Entertainment, it seemed like it was making fun of us for liking minions in my book. They were like, imagine if these were gods. I think it was yeah. more... Th- like that they was, found so many of these fucking minions they're like, they must have worshipped This demons. was having a go at the bumbling <laughs> nature of like historians where they have to make yeah. certain inferences and assumptions. But yeah. I think mm. the point of the original book making that commentary, and I realise that I'm being boring here, but the point <laughs> of the original book making that comment was that people did in a way worship Mickey Mouse and that yeah. if you looked at the right signals and and like the fact that they had built like giant fucking statues to then this it guy, has all the hallmarks of exactly religious following yeah, exactly. exactly and so in this one they just had a couple of like tin minions and they were like Tinions. oh they must have been gods good one buddy and I felt like that just didn't have quite the same impact it yeah. was also kind of gross I, I do think that that uh, it perfectly expresses my reaction to the film in large part yeah. like the the book was. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a great work of literature, a classic, but it was a quite a good know. book. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's up there in terms of ingenuity. Certainly. Mm. Um, but I, I felt that a lot of 
the interesting uh, philosophical, moral aspects and so on of the book and also character development yeah. uh, just really got stripped away in search of, hey, uh, what action sequence can we do because we're due for another one of those in yeah. 30 seconds. Yeah. yeah, and so that's... um. As we sort of launch into the story, the the idea behind the book is there's this um <laughs> there's this new social structure way of thinking that they call municipal Darwinism. The idea being that like it's just like Darwinism but with cities, and so like the little towns that can't outrun the big towns get eaten and swallowed up, and the big towns get bigger and better and I mean, stronger. Municipal and Darwinism is just like yeah, it's capitalism but yeah. accelerated into like a literal physical machinated sense. Yeah. Um. So there's so the whole first scene in the movie we referenced before is London chasing down like Saltsheim, like That's some small so Bavarian small mining town, a small yeah. basically a small Bavarian mining town. The idea being that all these cities are on wheels, so suddenly London can fucking launch over to oh, and wherever that this German town is and chase it up. And that something was the whole first scene. It was like you're watching this one to like swallow up the fucking town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. The reason why it's able to swallow a small Bavarian town, by the way, is that something they didn't explain in this movie was that and it was referenced a bunch of times, but it was a big point in the book, was like that London has crossed the land bridge was what they talked about. And what they actually and meant left was... Britain. Yeah, they drove across the channel. Uh, no, the I think English, that, was, that, was, that was pretty clear. Well, no, they make I, a big point out of it in the books. Yeah, yeah because they the were book is like, for fucking children. So is this movie. Oh, I don't know. The movie, oh, called, come the movie on. like, when you depict these movies, like it feels a bit darker. In the same way as, like... This was way less dark than the books. Garrett, yeah. Way less dark right? than the books. I mean, uh, we'll, Shrike alone, and we'll get into that later. We'll get later. into some of yeah. the details, but, like, yeah. One of the main motivations for the characters in the book yeah. was, I'm going to go back and murder this dude. Yeah. I'm going to go and murder him. All yeah. I want in life is to <laughs> murder this man. That is multiple characters, actually. <laughs> and in the movie, they're like... Yeah, we're getting you saved, then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Sucks. And so, yep. right. And so, so the the main crux of this book is that there's all these fucking towns and cities that go around the place. There's this other sort of opposing faction on the planet that are anti-tractionists that uh, and they've walled themselves off on a large part of the continent yeah. with cliffs and a massive shield yeah. wall blocking. And, and they the don't have the moving pass. cities. Yeah, and they live in like quaint old. Cities yeah. that don't have that any don't wheels move. at all. Yeah. The shock, <laughs> and so like they they have all the resources no traction and that. here. Yeah, they have all the resources and that. And so the mayor of London is trying to big London up to be able to crack through this shield wall to get into this fertile sort of, land this beyond, haven. where London can just run around eating and, like, up all the settlements that yeah. are incapable of escaping. Yeah, and so the the idea and what, sort of, uh, the reason why that works, by the way, is that they can just shovel all of the raw materials from whatever they uh, eat. Straight, straight into, into the straight into the furnace. Yeah, and, and then so, it's our mate's job to sort of root through that shit before they furnace it in. Yeah, because um, when when that chase scene or whatever. Yeah, and they show it very briefly in the movie. But when that chase scene was happening, I was like, don't they need to like absorb the fuel somehow or something like that? But they don't. They just it. They will. They've found a way that they can power it based off just raw <laughs> material. <laughs> like whatever. it's not like there's some sort of cosmic or like quantum engine. It's like their amazing technology is a no, shovel they, and a big fire. No, they they just yeah. melt it down and yeah. then go through a complex distillation. <laughs> Process to separate it into base components, which, which right. are Black then uh, refined into any goods that they might need. Oh, thank right. God, thank God right. we have you here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And I th- again, I think that there's just the opportunity for a lot more of that sort of stuff to be explained in the in the books. Yeah. But yeah, in the movie, they just they can just shovel anything, which is why it actually does internally make sense yeah. for them to be able to want to break into this thing and just eat everything. Yeah, yeah. And so, without like summarizing the plot for ages, which is I- colonialism, <laughs> by the way. The, the the idea behind the, the the quick setup for the movie is the mayor in public says he has this uh, 
brave plan to sort of give London some new energy system. And that's what he's secretly building up on the top deck of the city. He's in building St. Paul's Cathedral, in St. Paul's by Cathedral, the way. Yeah. The big dick energy system. Yeah, yeah. He's building some big new energy system. That's why he's collecting all these different parts in that. <laughs> yeah, he's so no, you just skimmed right past it. I expected <laughs> at least any reaction. <laughs> you didn't I, even, I said didn't big even... dick and he gave me nothing. <laughs> that's usually such a winning strategy. You didn't even change the tone of your voice. <laughs> 27 episodes by I've learned pretty well. Um, and so uh, we find out pretty quickly that the, the the mayor has something more sinister going on. The mayor, played by Hugo Weaving, did a very good nope. job. I think. What? Nope. the The mayor is Magnus Chrome. Hugo Weaving plays uh, Valentine. The isn't that the mayor guy? Evil guy. No, I no, mean he kind like of wants a, to be the mayor. Yeah, he's he's like a a top level public servant. Okay, fine. Uh, yeah, James yeah. Dallas. Yeah. Who gives a fuck? That other guy in the cape. The, Hugo Weaving's the mayor of London. He's True. not, they, but he is. To be honest, um, they should have written out the mayor. Yeah, it made no sense. Yeah, um, and again, he played a much bigger part in the original movie, so they've big, chosen yeah. a stupid decision to keep a character in there that has no purpose. Yeah, really. which I think, uh, as we explain it further, yeah. well, there's quite a number of characters that should so have seen the action. We find out Hugo Weaving, who is at some point up in the civil structure of this city, has a tremendous amount of power, Hold might on. not necessarily have any kind of powers in England and mayoral duties, but he's <laughs> he certainly makes decisions. Look, if there's one thing that I know, it's that listeners of this podcast only care about us being explicitly right about everything, <laughs> and if we're not, and if we're even the slightest bit wrong, they want us to stop, break the pace, and go and check. Do research. I tried so hard to make this quick. <laughs> and, provide, and provide them with hard, irrefutable fact. Main character Tom... Finds out pretty quickly that this mayor dude, Hugo Weaving, is twisted and crooked. And in, like, Tom trying to figure out what the mayor's doing, the mayor, like, pushes him off the city and tries to kill him. Yeah. Right? Now, Tom is sort of, like, stuck out in this wasteland with this random chick who did try and kill Hugo Weaving. So, they're both trying to get back onto London. Tom, because that's where he lives. This chick, because she wants to kill Hugo Weaving. Yeah. Um, and they sort of meet people along the way. They, um, spoilers, if you give a fuck about, uh, spoilers for a book what's the name of this movie? Years ago. Mortal Engines. Mortal Engines. Um, <laughs> uh, they meet up with these rebels and things and that's how the story happens. Right. right. Um, and it really did feel like the pacing of this movie was fucked. I don't know what you guys thought, but it felt like... There, there was no downtime. Yeah. There like, was, like, hey, we have two minutes. Yeah. We're going to use those two, minute, yeah. two minutes to set up a new setting, be it yeah. a marketplace or and a small city or, or something. Yeah. And so we have <laughs> two minutes in which to introduce all the stuff of this setting, Yeah. give the characters a problem, have them run around like running away from dangerous things and shooting people and so on, yeah, it was and then... Dive out the side, and then we and then wait somewhere else. Thirty yeah. seconds, yeah. and then we have this two-minute stretch again. Yeah. Like yeah. they'd have so many, yeah, literally. Like they'd be like, "Here's a new place, let's blow it up. Here's a new character, let's kill him." And like, I feel like Peter Jackson got shit for splitting up the Hobbit into two or three movies, whatever the fuck it was. I really feel like this would have been better serviced by being split into like two movies, because I thought one of the best bits about this movie was like seeing. As someone who might be very familiar with this world, if I hadn't read the books, which I hadn't really, sorry, Mr. Which Hughes. you were supposed um, to. Yeah. Um, 
seeing like seeing these big tiered cities they didn't really explain they just sort of showed it to you like here's what it is watch this city eat this city like I think that it, we would have been better served by sort of maybe watching Tom live his life in the city for 20 minutes and sort of learn about how this city works and how the structure works and sort of introduce his character slowly you get maybe the backstory to Hester Shaw the chick that wants to kill Hugo Weaving like a lot more slowly um, she has this whole other interesting backstory that's really interesting that is sort of broke Bros, breezed, brosden, brosen. It's brosen over in this movie, um, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I, I think that I just think that it's this breezed. Whole, by the way, yeah, I know, no, I know. <laughs> I, and I, I feel, I, I feel like this whole movie would have been a lot more interesting if we had a chance. Brosen <laughs> is my favorite member of the Incredibles. <laughs> You know, you know how Frozen is kind of like the movie for girls. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah Frozen, yeah. Frozen. They they give everyone like thug spikes, and it's Brozen, and now it's now and all, it's for all the boys. music is replaced with rap. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And it takes place entirely and now. It's a boy a, movie because that's what boys want within an American fraternity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, actually, now that you say that, that sounds fucking that great. Actually, <laughs> I would, yeah, I'll watch that. Shit. I would watch that. Copyright, copyright Beef Station 2018. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm. We're recording See this. See you in court, DreamWorks. <laughs> we're, we're, we're recording this from IP Australia offices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, we're just jacked into the mainframe. Everything we say is copyright. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Can we copyright existing is shit? It? We want the iPod. Is everything we say copyright? I guess I can't use this. No, audio. everything we say. No, everything we say is copyright. It's not <laughs> trade. Uh, Microsoft. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Apple. The Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> C- communism. Hey, the, we, yeah, there the we go. The year 1964. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything uh, AD onwards. <laughs> or, or we could just go full Cabri and try and uh, trademark yeah, the Purple. purple. <laughs> yeah, Do we yeah, get yeah, Jesus? Exactly. He's year zero. We want Jesus as well. Yeah, and like, Jesus as well. It's like AD 30, <laughs> right? Yeah. I already oh. said everything past AD. We're all good. Right, Uh, but yeah, I just feel like I don't know about you, but I feel like this whole movie would have been a good. I would have loved one movie to just be an introduction to this world, and maybe like where Tom gets sort of tossed off and has to sort of get his way back to London, or where he find where they meet those rebels, and then there's this sort of complication. That would have been a great ending to the first movie, if you know what I mean. See, interestingly enough, look, I totally agree. and I think that the that this movie makes a classic mistake of a movie being adapted from a book um, where yeah. they don't focus enough on parts that they should have. And, and they, they, they just, they just need to keep pick a couple Exactly. And they try to keep everything, but they also yeah. know that they can't have everything. So they cut down bits that are shit. And unfortunately, to... the bits that they apparently decided were shit and could see the axe was basically all character development. Yes, yeah, right. absolutely. And that's always the first thing to go well, in these so, movies. So I feel like if you want but to go on two hours, just quickly, you have to, right? What I was going to say is that, yeah. interestingly enough, to, to, to restore some slight credit to the movie, I do feel like the book also gets going very fast. I feel like you only right. get... You don't there's, get much. There's maybe Tom. two chapters. Yeah, at the, right yeah. at the very beginning, where Tom is going around uh, at the museum, doing his job, yep. and uh, pondering about uh, these particular artifacts yeah. that he's discovered, which are basically weapons-grade tech from our time. <laughs> yep. um, and he's basically wondering, well, should I hand it over to my, like, to the guys at the top of the city who are very interested in weapons great tech or yeah. should i yeah. as a proper historian uh, observe only and try and uh, basically not allow militarization of my research yeah. yep yeah and so i feel like even though um 
you know, this movie does get going very fast, and I agree that it skims over. Because what what Hanging Around would have achieved was character development, right? Mm. If they had just kind of broadened that out, and, and you know, for us, like, for us wizened old adults watching the movie... <laughs> Um, yeah. We wanted to see more of what it's fucking like to live on a city that's doing that. Exactly. I, yeah. I think that is what by it, far what the most like interesting part of this world. What does it, it is, look like? It is unlike... I mean, look, you can... You it's can unlike any other sci-fi plenty, premise you have. Exactly. Right. You can yeah. take plenty of fiction and go, okay, so it's basically Lord of the Rings with these three changes. Yeah. yeah. Right? This but is this, one of the most this unique This is settings. unique. Yeah. Ever and I can't think of another... Uh, no. book or <laughs> imagine like the, that involves the stones on an author <laughs> releasing another book that was called like Move, moving cities that die <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cities eating each other so, uh, yeah. I, think, I think Karl Marx released that one man <laughs> like it's it's kind of funny that you can have so many fantasy books that are basically exactly the same setting but like no but we call magic magic ah well I think and, the, and, and the wizards and are called flings. yeah ex- exactly the, the, the problem that you hit with sci-fi as a as a sci-fi expert, yeah. Um, the problem that you soon hit is when you're getting into something like um, uh, Ian Banks, like the Hydrogen Sonata, where which, by the things, way, you should all read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're at all into sci-fi or even not, the thing, <laughs> these things span like you know the scope is like oh, the universe, and it like zooms right down into like some ongoings for the 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 uh, like a council of galaxies or whatever, and the, the scale is. Way too big to be yeah. involved in a single movie. You know, that's why things like um, uh, Battlestar Galactica or like Andromeda, you know, that are trying to have this like galactic scale are often TV series where they have a little more time to flesh things out. They often don't achieve yeah. that. But and and like, they also also uh, tend to be focused on the events of either one very specific person or one very or specific or ship yeah. or crew. Yeah. Yeah. They really mm. don't like to zoom back and look at multiple settings as you would in most fiction. Right. Yeah. And it's because you don't have the time to deliberate on how yeah. that would go. But this is a book that actually was manageable in terms of adaptation to a movie, similarly to Lord of the Rings, I think, or The Hobbit, where it it sort of, yeah, it was massive in scale um, and it was an extremely ambitious idea, but the way that it was grounded in different hubs and sort of focused on those stories and how those hubs interacted was quite linear and quite reasonable to bring into the the form of the film. You start in Hobbiton and you learn about Hobbiton and the Hobbits and then they go through the Mirkwood and you learn about the forests yeah. and so on and then they go to the next place and you learn about that yeah and you know likewise mortal engines is is kind of anchored by tom and then it's anchored by hester shaw and then it's anchored by whoever those whoever other two people are that are on london <laughs> that i don't remember because yeah. they're irrelevant in this movie no it's like some like engineer mechanic guy and then the daughter of hugo weaving they're really important in the book but by the way. both of yeah, them should have been cut from the film yeah they, yeah, really they could have been did not they, serve they, much they kept them in as like shell characters that basically only serve to manage to have a reason to show the audience what hugo weaving is doing and why it's evil and bad yeah I suppose and, so. and, like, and to avoid complaints about hey where was Catherine? she was my favorite character but then right. also like the weird thing about having those characters Maybe this is. Did, was this for the movie, or did it also not make sense in the book, or what? The idea that everything made um, sense in the book. Okay, right. So Tom meets up with this um, uh, uh, Hugo Weaving's daughter, who's like a total hottie, and he's like showing around the museum for all of about five minutes before like his supervisor comes by and like totally dogs him and sends him off to do some shit job. Um, I think and that then, also happens in the book. Right, right it but does, then, yeah. but th- so that it's it's like literally five minutes, and that's the first time that uh, Tom meets this chick. 
And then for the rest of the movie, she's like, oh, Tom, where's Tom? I love Tom. I just, I hope Tom's safe. Which makes a little more sense in the book because yeah. they spend like six chapters together. Yeah. And, and also Right. Like, so where are those six chapters and, and in this fucking movie? That, that, that dynamic in, so you know how like in this, in this movie, and again, like we're just going to, I think we, with this one, we'll just do away. Like we're going to spoil everything, right? Yeah. Um, in this, uh, in this particular case, like um, Tom ends up being sort of, Confused in the book, Tom ends up being confusedly intimate with Hester Shaw to varying levels. Where like that's the rebel chick that's trying to kill Hugo Weaving that, with like, the scar. The ship of Hester, right? Sorry, yeah. we, sh- we should uh, mention the scar at this point. So yeah, the, so the she's, defining she's feature of Hester interested. Shaw's character is that when she was a child, uh, some backstory stuff happened, and Valentine, that is the London mayor guy who's not actually the mayor, yep. uh, attempted <laughs> to kill Weaving. her, and in that botched. Uh, murder attempt yeah. uh, massively disfigured her face, and we're not so talking. He, he buries a sword here. in her skull. Exactly, so she like, loses an eye. A fair chunk of yeah. her face is literally missing and has grown back grotesque. And they totally was out on that in this movie. Yeah, she's As like in a beautiful so many actress other with a star. Yeah. She's hot, but with a bandana covering the bottom of her face. Exactly, like except that for three quarters of the film, the bandana's gone, and she doesn't seem at all worried about that. And hey, she's beautiful anyway, yeah. so that's okay. and it's like little more than a Harry Potter scar on her chin. She's no Scarred I mean, like, than fucking seal. <clears throat> exactly. So, <laughs> like the thing, the thing that's different about in the book. So Tom is initially has that connection to Catherine. Catherine, thank you. Uh, this is um, Valentine's daughter. Valentine's daughter, Catherine. Yep. Um, he initially has that connection to her, but the function that they serve both in the book and the movie is to establish a Romeo and Juliet class structure. So where Tom, Tom is from the middle class. He is from tier four. And they call it that. tier four because it's literally like the fourth platform. They're literally up. That's, lower that's right. than. So, <laughs> so London yeah. is literally like stacked vertically yeah. in eight platforms. Right up to the yeah. second from top level, which is like the gardens, which is like the upper class or maybe yeah. the top and level. And then there's top yeah. tier, which is where Valentine <laughs> and Catherine and the city's elite yeah. hail from. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's very much a, a highly uh, classist elite society. Yeah. yeah. So blonde hotties from tier one, Tom's from tier four. It's a romance that's never to be and it apparently goes on for quite a while in the books which is why it makes sense that like Tom wants to get back to her and she's like looking out for where Tom is. Right. Right. And so You don't like, get that in this. In the book, Catherine and the mechanic dude um, Bevis Pod, who Bevis, again Bevis could be fucking completely pod. removed from yeah. the film. So his How function, fucked would we have been if Jason wasn't here? Huge, huge spoilers. Well, yeah, I see, had a good this, talk. This is why they invited me out to this station. Uh, I'm yeah, just yeah, an yeah, encyclopedia right. of <laughs> this one film. You're leaking our methods, <laughs> Jason. <laughs> you know that book we read 10 years ago in year seven? Well, and Jason's like, yes. My partner very recently read um, Mortal Engines, and just, so she was talking to me about a lot of it. And apparently, so spoiler alert, in the book... Bevis Pod dies, right? And his his <gasps> function as a character is meant to be like that that death of an innocent, where like he kind of wants nothing to do with it the whole time. He's just he's, like he's Samwise Gamgee, right? He's, yeah, exactly. he's brought along on yeah. someone else's quest because they are his friend and he is loyal. Yeah, he does everything he possibly can in his power to aid his friend. Yeah, and so, then he gets killed in a senseless and completely unavoidable, <laughs> impersonal way by a an airship falling on. Him. And so then yeah. in the movie, no one has any idea who this fucking guy is, for, like from an audience perspective. Because it literally he, looks like they ask some random fucking guy for directions. He's like, "Oh, I don't want to give you directions. Hold on, no, let me stick around with you for the rest of the movie." And then yeah, they it, cut just, away to whatever the fuck the other characters are doing. And every now and then, every now and then, we yeah, we'll cut check back on to what's with happening you in forty-five on, minutes. Yeah, exactly. Every now this, and then again, we cut back to what's happening on the city, and it's just blonde hottie and that random fucking guy. She asked for directions. 
this this is not hyperbole. I reckon that Bevis Pod probably has about three minutes of screen time. Yeah, it's if that. If that. He's, it, yeah. yeah, and every He's time useless. you're like, what the fuck is he doing there? Even Catherine wouldn't have much more than that, other than the <laughs> bit at the start she's got with Tom. Yeah. So like, yeah. Which mostly Those involves her running around and being a little uncomfortably damsel in distress. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I guess like one of the distinctions is, and uh, I, this is getting back to the structure of the story and why it works as a film, is that you you have these in the book, similarly to in the movie, or at least they've tried to keep this in the movie, yeah. is that it's anchored, the, the story starts in these in these hubs like London or Salt Hook or the... Uh, crawling place that they get abducted in in like the, the book, I think it's Tunbridge Wells right, or okay. Tunbridge yeah. Wheels because it used to be a town um, so the, the, it, what you do is you, you start off in this hub of London where you are introduced to a whole group of characters and then it says okay we're going to pick one or two of those characters and we're going to follow them that's now your story anchor right we yeah. will occasionally move we'll check in with Shrike or we'll check in with another character but then from then it's character based it, it follows the story yeah. of the characters right and then later on, it comes back when the hubs come back together and you've got London confronting the, the shield wall of the Anti-Traction League. And so all of the characters are kind of centralized in the same place again. Yeah. But that's why it works. It works because it's following the characters and where they end up, not following the grand scale of the city and whatever. Exactly. Despite the depth and grandeur of this setting, which yeah. is truly fantastic, it is fundamentally a character story, right. which yeah. isn't about the plot. It's about the character development of a couple of very specific people. And so I feel like where the movie falls short then is that the the, the visuals are spectacular. Like, it's almost exactly what I had hoped the movie would look yeah, like. Yeah, 100%. Where, like, hard to ask for more Art department gets a 10 out of 10. It looks yeah, so good. Like, book. it's so fantastic seeing these, like, cities that have been reimagined and stacked up. Like, you see these little European towns that are, like, those beautiful old terraced houses that look like they're about 400 years old, all stacked up and clumped together on these rickety little platforms. It honestly sort of makes me interested in along. architecture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then and the way that London is laid out as well, like, um, the, like top, the, sh- of, the top of London and St. Paul's Cathedral. And like the shard all mashed up together into other buildings. And yeah, shit. and they've got the cool. London Eye, which has all of the capsules removed and double-decker buses put in where they are and it forms like a subway. There is yeah. so much detail. Oh, here. that's right. what that was. You, yeah, right. you yeah. can yeah. just pause a random still of London and spend 20 minutes just yeah. looking at the detail yeah. that they put in. Yeah. It is painstaking, it is beautiful, yeah. and it deserves a call-out. So I think the, yeah. I think the movie's definitely worth seeing. If this you would like be in the see... for Oscars for Best Art Direction. Yeah, and, and, and so I think it's worth seeing in the on the big screen if you liked going mm. to see The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and all that just to enjoy the whole world and look at all that I think in the same way this movie holds its own in that respect um, I agree just, like, just in the like idea Avatar that, Avatar yeah, is exactly. not a fantastic film, story but yeah. it was worth seeing in 3D in the yeah. cinema because it was just beautiful yeah exactly and I think I think this film is definitely worth seeing for that and so the fact that we're going to like <laughs> uh, maybe ruin parts of the story like fine I, I don't think you're going to miss out on much of the experience I think it's definitely worth seeing um, for that experience if that's what you're into yeah um, I just feel like yeah I, I just feel like the fact that you guys are saying the book is really important about character and about how these characters are responding to the world and how Tom for example lives with the fact that he's being tossed off of the city and has to live in this sort of wasteland for by his hero no less so yeah exactly so it's very clear um in the book more than the film, that Valentine, the Mary guy... Hugo Weaving, yep. Yeah, Hugo Weaving, uh, is basically who Tom wants to be when he grows up. Yeah, and so then this guy turns out to be crooked and throws him the... The, the point is, in this thing, like Tom just seems like he's having a whinge because he has to walk through mud. Yeah, and, and he's also like... 
in the book, he is one of the more like sensitive. He's almost actually. It's interesting. We were talking about um, Newt Scamander's character in the in the uh, Fantastic Beasts episode a little while back, and how right. like he's kind of that really anti-masculine yeah. character. Tom is almost the same. Where like he's he he embodies very little in the book. This is he embodies very little of the normal traits of a masculine protagonist. Where yeah. he's strong and bold and confident or whatever. Mm. And actually, he's he's, he's quite... weak and lost and out of his element. Yeah, he's yeah. alone in a vast, uncaring world. Yep. Right. And he is terrified. And so I suppose that's how it comes Hester across. Hester here. Shaw has to save him from himself most yeah. of the time, which is a trait that some or a, a sorry a technique, I guess, or, or whatever. That sometimes happens in the movie, but not nearly as much as it's focused on in the books. So I think in the movie, rather than coming across as like out of his element, forgivably so, he actually just comes across as a bit of a simpering baby. But he's like a bumbling idiot as yeah, well. Like yes. most of everything, every single thing that goes wrong in the first like hour is all his fault. Yeah. Like Hester's probably like, don't do that. And he does that and she gets shot and they have to live with the fact that she gets fucking shot in the leg yeah. for the rest of the movie. Like, I don't know if that happened in the book, but like that was really fucking annoying. To the point where like the third time it happened, I was like, Oh, come on. How is everything this idiot's fault? Like you would have thought at some point he'd learn to just take some take some advice and shut yeah. up. Yeah. Um Yeah. I thought the writing was also like like there was some so the first the first ten minutes, I was just thinking. So we're watching Captain Exposition yeah. has just met Mrs. Exposition. There's so much exposition, and they are expositioning all over the place. When yeah. we really just need a whole bunch of shots to visually show us a shattered continent. Yeah, like cities running around and eating each other. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Oh, yeah, because they, they they go to the museum for like five minutes, and he just explains the backstory of the whole world, like pointing at a map. Yeah, yeah fuck that. And and um, even though I don't really like uh, prelude to film as just a separate short film showing the lore yeah. and history. I think that would have been better than just exposition. Do you notice how the Universal Studios logo was the same as the normal one, but all the countries were being bombed and there were nu- nuclear clouds popping up on the... On no, the, I didn't. That was really I, cool. I didn't. So, like, you know, cool. the, the globe that... Yeah, so the, it was being bombed and it was, like, showing you the 60-minute war thing. Hmm. But there were so many little lines where, like, it was literally, like, they had a great bit of writing and then a tiny little tagline at the end that would fuck it. Like, um, like they're talking about, uh, I don't know, the, these people fucking around with ancient technology and they're like... They don't know what they're playing with. He's like, yeah, fire. What? They're playing with fire. Yeah, like, right. Well, why would <laughs> yeah, you... It's, it's like we, we got that the first <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, Even yeah, they're, they're playing with fire isn't a great yeah. line. <laughs> like, they don't know what they're playing with. Fire. You'd be like, okay, cool, great. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. Sure. But they're, they're like, sorry, can you explain that for the kids? Yeah. Um, the, the only other one I had, and this is a good time to explain who the fuck Shrike is, is that Shrike is this mechanical... Terminator. Un- undead Terminator man thing. Zombie um, Terminator. Yeah, he's like a zombie Terminator thing. He's oh, got yeah. like mechanical arms and yeah. shit. So he, he's and a he resurrected takes... cyborg. So- yeah, right. Yeah. And so he takes this Hester Shaw chick under her wing, under his wing, like right after she gets cast aside and almost killed and has the knife slash across her face. And he basically raises her for, it sounds like 10 years or something. Um, and so even though he's this like killing machine, she sort of sees his softer side and he doesn't have any feelings or any memories, but like they live together for like 10 years. And so she's sort of in this vignette that lasts about five minutes. And sort of talk, she's sort of talking about like, Oh no, don't kill Shrike because here's my personal experience with him. Let me just stop now and explain it for 10 minutes. Um, and she says like, um, I thought it was kind of cool. Like it shows like his workshop and there's all these old like clockwork toys and like broken automatons and like creepy, like, you know, like old school, like tw- 1920s t- 
toys with like a plaster painted face and like mechanical clockwork limbs and that and um, creepy mechanized. It dolls looks like creepy as fuck. And the, the, the voice there was like, he likes to collect broken things which have been cast aside. Yeah, it's like, and what, then we couldn't work that out just uh, from seeing his workshop yeah. full of broken things. <laughs> yeah, right. So I thought it was like, oh, okay, that's fine. But yeah, I find cool. I get it. Broken things that have been cast aside, and it focuses on him. And you're like, all oh, right. And then there's this scene I, I, where Hester Shaw, as a kid, is like. He's working on some fucking mech, and she's like, where's his heart? And this right goes, it has no heart. Just like, <laughs> like me. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Just like me, I also don't have a heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And again, you're like, oh, come on. Yeah. It's, uh, so much of the exposition is just so heavy-handed. Yeah. I mean, it's by no means the worst offense that I've seen in yeah. recent film. Uh, I think that would probably go to Bright. Uh, <laughs> But it's didn't it's, watch that one. It is not good. You should. It is well I've, worth watching. To I've see seen how I've well seen you a brutal analysis of flensing it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. what yeah. mine? Uh, uh, no, um, uh, Lindsay Ellis. Uh, also, if you're ever interested in a film, you, you both should check out Lindsay Ellis. I don't really um, care. About I, I recognize everyone. the name. It, yeah, she does a lot of um, uh, film analysis in terms of like um, socio-political trends and stuff. But she did. Uh, right. She did an assessment of like. Um, racism and fascism undertones that that were in Bright. Um, <laughs> Not just an assessment of racism and fascism. No, no, no. That were in Bright. She looks at, at pretty pretty specifically at movies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So strikes this like fucking Terminator dude, and that was another problem I had with like characters that are brought up and then instantly like cast aside within twenty minutes. So we find out who Strike is, and already you're not quite clear who the fuck he is. Like, someone's like, oh, a risen man! And you see robot hands, and you're like, all right, what is that? And so, then almost like 15 minutes after he's introduced, and he plays his, like, role in the story, he's dead. But actually, in the book, it's... <laughs> in the whole book, bit. In the book, it does the same thing, but it's much better. In the book, mm. you spend... And maybe that's just by, the, by virtue of the amount of tension you can build up from a character over the time that a book takes to read. And, yeah, and exactly. particularly a character who doesn't appear for most of it. You just yeah. hear that she is being hunted by Shrike. Yep. And yeah. this news is scary to everyone. Yeah. And yeah. don't really understand why. And like yeah. people catch word that like this, this woman has a fucking resurrected man after her. And they're like, yeah. well, Jesus Christ. Well, yeah. Like, get her off we, don't, we don't get any of that. We just yeah. get her being like, Here, that's a resurrected man. Let me explain to you what that is for a bit. And then he's dead. Like, a resurrected man? Are you talking about the type of resurrected man that was like a blah, blah, blah zombie that was built in these particular times and uh, they tend to bloody <laughs> chase after people and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Like you mean the, that type of resurrected man? And she's like, yes, I mean the type of resurrected man that won't stop chasing me until he's grounded to dust or whatever. Yeah. Which is infuriating because you don't, you just do not need that information. No. Like It's fine in a book where you can read about all the law and the backing. Yeah, but yeah. in a film, really all you need is a shot of him that shows that he is very obviously like two-thirds mechanical Yeah, and then someone like being scared at the mention of this person has a resurrected man after. I yeah. think the shot of him, the way that the movie... So he is introduced to us in the film and I can't remember specifically what I was going to say about him that's cool in the books is that for most of the book his entire character motivation is other people saying 
all he wanted to do is kill Hester Shaw. He just wants his, his it's all he'll say is I want I'm gonna fucking murder Hester Shaw. I'm gonna yeah, fucking yeah. murder her. She I'm broke her, her promise, gonna... I will kill Hester but, but Shaw. Am I right in saying there is no promise in the books? Correct. Right. Because that's that's key too, because you you don't know that there's a connection. You just think like I guess the, the point that you're supposed to draw early is that someone sicked her him on her. Yeah, so and so how it works yeah. in the books, as I recall, is that uh, Magnus Crumb, <laughs> who is the mayor of London cut a deal with Shrike, this resurrected man, saying, look, uh, I need to kill Hester Shaw, but if you do it for me, I will resurrect her as one of you. Right. Uh, And that was a bit too complicated to deal with in the movie. Exactly. And that's, that's, I feel, very interesting because it's this conundrum posed to Shrike, this resurrected man, that obviously he doesn't want Hester to die, but it looks like she's going to die anyway, regardless of his involvement. <laughs> and this way, uh, she gets to be brought back immortal like him. Yeah, exactly. And, Which and is like, something that she has always wanted in the book as a child growing up, to right. not have a heart and the weaknesses of humanity. And you get that a she bit in this. She envies him. Yeah. yeah. And you do get that a little bit in this, but what, what's so But it's great literally about her that? being like, man, I'd love to not have feelings. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be good to not have feelings. And Shrike's like, hey, you know, I don't have feelings. <laughs> and you know that promise you made me where I'm going to resurrect you and you won't have feelings, but also I have some feelings. <laughs> anyway. If I so, only had a brain. Yeah. Okay. It, oh, so in this, in, in the... Uh, in the book, the next thing you find out after the fact that um, I just want to waffle on about Shrike for a little while because he's like a fucking cool antagonist <laughs> and they really pissed away a great Spectacular opportunity. Spectacular character and concept. Yeah. Like so much of this book. Exactly. It's, I mean, even if the plot was rubbish and the characters all sucked, so many concepts are novel and interesting takes on mm. things that just aren't done that much in I, fiction. I think and he doesn't really seem like an antagonist like, in the movie. He just feels like no. a complication that they dismiss after about 15 minutes. No. And then, on, like, suddenly, it feels like he should have been cut yeah. if it wasn't for how cool he yeah. was. Like, so, suddenly London becomes the antagonist. So in the book, the, the first thing you learn about Shrike is that he's going to kill Hester Shaw. The yeah. second thing you learn about Shrike is that Hester Shaw lived with him when she was young. Yeah. And so that, that causes you... So, like, two-thirds of the book, you're like, right, he's just this... He he functions as this constant inexorable tide of like, if you stop moving, something's hunting you, so yeah. you fucking die, right? So on top of doing what you want to do, you also have a timer where you cannot ever rest or stop mm. because You're if you yeah. rest always, or stop, Shrike will running. catch you. Exactly. So he functions like this juggernaut that's chasing and hunting them. And then the next thing you learn is that juggernaut that's been a constant, just inhuman threat the whole time cared for you as a child yeah right and, so and that leaves the reader or the viewer so going questions. whoa hang on that yeah how, what do i make of this information what's that thing how is it capable of care how is it so and I, I suppose i actually kind of like the idea of what was in the book originally then because that kind of shows that like at least strikes motivation makes some kind of sense as some kind of trace of humanity has and some kind of trace of feelings he has for Hester Shaw being like, this is the best thing I can do to almost keep Hester Shaw alive yeah. is to kill her and exactly. get Magnus Cronus so Mayer, dude that's not Hugo Weaving, to resurrect her. Whereas in this, it's kind of like, Hester said that she wanted to be this robot thing. Like she made then, a deal and then she immorally backed out on it. And then like, she changed her mind. Yeah. And then he's just like irrationally being like, I know I said I'd do it if you wanted it. And then you said you would, but now you don't want it. I'm going to trace you anyway. Yeah. I'm angry about that. Yeah. I'm angry about that very reasonable decision. Like, like it, yeah. Exactly. But the original concept is so interesting because yeah. the one thing that Shrike wants, he doesn't care about his own life. He doesn't care about lives in general the <laughs> only thing he desires is for Hester to be safe 
Yeah. And the only way that he can figure out to keep Hester safe is by hunting her down and killing her. And turning <laughs> her into a, this, yeah. this non-human immortal. Right. right. So you don't get any of that in the movie, which is kind of... And yeah. I guess like what well, we should probably stop because I'm aware that like probably most people that that haven't, are listening haven't to this probably haven't seen the book and may not have seen the movie. So we'll, yeah. we should stop waffling on too much about specifics. But I guess the the point of all of that and us talking about it is that it has a, a, one of or, or multiple incredibly strong grounding concepts in the book yeah. that just don't really come across properly and in the movie. It would have been such a great opportunity for world building, mm. I think. And I think that it was a real shame that we didn't get that. And yeah. it's it almost, I don't know about you, Jason, but it, it almost felt like they assume you've read the book going into the movie. Or they assume you've sort of I'd read say the... I'd absolutely relied yeah, on that. They assume you've like read the crib notes of what this world is before you go in, right? Like... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I, I think it's certainly assumed that you've explored the concept, or you've yeah. had like a passive understanding. I don't think this book is that well known, right? Like, I don't. I would probably have never come across it if we Philip hadn't Reeve, done it. Is in Philip English. Reeve Australian? Yeah. Oh, I think oh, no, I, have, I have no idea. I think it might be British or something. Philip Reeve is is a British author, right? So I think like by virtue of the fact that us as like young Australian kids were not only reading this book casually but also studying it in high school, like a, a fair few people from our generation um, have have at least heard about this book, if not read it. Right. right. So I, I mean, it came out in two thousand and one. Yeah, but in the same seventeen like, years ago, I feel like. I would never have even heard of this book if it wasn't like that they gave me a fucking copy in English class. Like, mm-hmm. Harry Potter, sure, you can do that. I feel like there's a very limited number of books where you can assume people have an understanding of the world of that kind of universe, if that makes sense, you know? Like, Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or whatever. I feel like fucking Mortal Engines, like, you can't just, like, drop a phrase like, municipal Darwinism and, like, look at these cities that eat each other and, oh, look though, at this strike they... thing and then just assume you're going to know what the fuck's going on. Exactly, oh. and they do that repeatedly. I mean, there is one, yeah. there is one single line in the entire film that goes, oh, my parents were killed in the Great Tilt. Yeah, and that's yeah. right. No one explains and I what remember that thinking I mean, like, it's, oh, it's yeah. a big theme in the book. Yeah. Because that was like the biggest disaster oh. in the Yeah, memory. when London I, like London the moving city kind of like had this massive um structural collapse and like and uh, much of tier uh, 4 was just, people like, just crushed. Yeah. crushed. See, I, I didn't <laughs> mind that because you know how we talked about how uh, Game of Thrones did that a lot. Where it's they, good sort of, they just mention it. Yeah, yeah, they mention stuff in passing. I kind of didn't mind that because you can immediately. I didn't remember that. I immediately, I was like, great till ah, oh, one of the and I sort of guessed that that would have been what would have happened. Mm. Yeah, and I kind of didn't mind that, but like yeah, that's fair. They kind of just oh, I don't know. It just feels like the whole movie was just like showing you like watch us piss away this great opportunity for like a great new franchise. It could have been maybe a good mini series. I, they I, wanted uh, all this stuff. Yeah. I think that they actually, given the reviews, I don't think they will be making a sequel. But I think no, that no. they intended to start a franchise. Yeah, because this was the first. Yeah. This this focus is so the Model Engines books are a quartet, and this this movie is only the first book. So it, to me, it seems clear that the intention was to yeah. test the waters. But to be fair, it also it kind of wrapped up in quite a nice way. Like I feel like, but the first book did ended in almost exactly the same way. So yeah, well, like, they sort they of like the, could have the cake and eat it too. They're having yeah. their like riding off into the sunset type thing, yeah. where like they didn't, it didn't. Re, it re, I mean, we didn't say it at the end of the credits, but it really didn't seem like they were like setting up with a teaser uh, no, cliffhanger. No, no, no. Like, uh, and like, the second book starts in a different place, and then kind of reintegrates back anyway. So right. Even if they did choose to do that. Yeah. Um, um, going into positive stuff, I think my favourite part of this whole movie the was... The art. 
the, yeah, the art style. Art I really like the floating city that was kind of like a whole bunch of actually yeah, airships so, and balloons. So and and we've we've talked again. so much about how bloated it is with stuff. Yeah. And in all that stuff that we have listed, which I'm sure you are paying great attention to and remember <laughs> in vivid detail, uh, we haven't even mentioned a cast of like seven characters, yeah. an entire uh, yeah. floating city called Airhaven, and a, a ship and that they that the two protagonists spend like a quarter of the film aboard and yeah. an entire goddamn subplot yeah <laughs> like replete with its own fresh cast of characters the names of whom escape me because none of them got any character development yeah. whatsoever yeah. Exactly. I believe one of them was Swedish which I could tell <laughs> by the fact that he had long blonde hair yeah. <laughs> and yeah. spoke in like a vaguely Scandinavian accent yeah but yeah. like fuck man I loved all the airships and shit this whole, the whole bit of the movie that was all the flying city and like which is basically just like a whole bunch of hot air balloons kind of roped together and like the planes the, all, the, all the flying machines they have felt just to sort of cobbled together as the the, the, the they cities. They looked brilliant. They looked they, awesome. It so felt like, yeah. great to watch. Yeah. I just wish it was written a little better. Yeah, like the main airship they have kind of looks like if one of those Chinese junk boats was kind of modernized and flung into the sky. Like Combined it had, with like one of those ceremonial lanterns. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. And, I, and I, I think... Um, Very cool. Yeah, it, it looked really cool. Like the sails kind of looked at that that's kind of an, shape. An, an exactly. You, yeah. you take a junk paper lantern and that's basically what it <laughs> yeah. was. Yeah. yeah. It looked awesome. And the way it moved, I loved the way that like the wings kind of... It almost looked like it was flapping, but also like it was kind of floating and soaring through the air, almost like solar sails on those weird spaceship looking things. Yeah. Um, so, all, but all the all the ships kind of felt like if they were like modernized, like biplanes, like the sort of ships you sort of sit in, and the sort of the wind in your hair and shit, and it just felt like pirates. The whole movie felt like air pirates. And I exactly, love that and the concept is strong enough that if yeah. they filmed like the Harry Potter series for some reason got. Beasts something. And spin-offs and all that. It, fantastic it, Beasts, it's yeah. It's a Fantastic Beasts. I feel that this world is rich enough that you could just do an entire about Anna like, Fang. side film just about Anna Fang. Uh, she was great. She was one of the coolest characters the, in the whole film. Exactly. The air captains yeah. of this world. I, I, I thought Anna Fang was one of the strongest characters in the whole movie. Yeah. I thought she was fucking great. She was funny. She was strong. Um, she felt like a character... You know how, like, when you meet some of the characters out of the Matrix in the first Yeah, Matrix I was going to say, she looked like Morphe she Morpheus, but with a red coat. A lot like... Uh, yeah, a lot a lot <laughs> like that that mysterious confidence that someone who is... Like, Tom is completely out of his depth like Trinity. in this world. It's like Trinity. Yeah, and all of a sudden, this character shows up. He's like, get the fuck there. Sit here. Don't touch this. Do yeah. touch this. Yeah. Someone don't do anything. Completely calm, collected, and <laughs> yeah. in control in the yeah. midst of this terrifying world that we've been following the protagonist yeah. through as he just stumbles around mm. yeah. uncertain. You, you know what? Fun the fact, more I think about uh, it, yeah. she was played by Ji Hae or Ji Hae Kim, who is better known as a South Korean uh, rock musician. Really? Yeah. That's cool. She kind of looked like a rock star. Mm. Um, the hair. You know, yeah, exactly. The, you, the, the more I think about it, I reckon, the more I reckon, nah, this movie was, it was a fun time to go and watch all the visuals and get all this. It's, it's like nothing you've ever seen before. It's fucking awesome. It, especially that first chase scene. Yeah, exactly. and then all this, all this air stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's just such a shame that it was let down by a bit of writing where you're sort of like, oh, come on. Um, Which, I mean, I don't think we... It's it's rather terrible, but I don't think we can be surprised by that. Oh, at I, this point, I mean, I've there are been so, too many times. so many films <laughs> these days where they pour 
millions, tens of millions into the casting. They pour tens of millions into the advertising, tens of millions into the art department. And for yeah. some reason, the script writing just gets Dog just like shit. pulled up short. So there's, there's I can't remember uh, where I heard it, but someone pointed out that if you compare British and American TV series uh, in Hollywood, the real limiting factor is time. They have more than enough money, but they have no time. Whereas in Britain, British TV series are typically filmed with much more time, but a very, very tight budget. Yeah, so, so that's why they have um, like eight episodes. <laughs> exactly. So if you look at I mean, something like the, the British classics, something like Yes Minister is basically three guys in a room talking. Yeah. And occasionally... You've got one or two of those guys and maybe one or two recurring characters in a different room talking. <laughs> or like, or like Black Books is like exactly. three idiots yeah. in a bookshop. In a and it is brilliant. It's filmed on a shoestring budget with only a handful of people. And so there's yeah. no effects. There's no like impressive art department or yeah. whatever. But what is brilliant is the scripting. And that's what mm. really makes something that lasts. Yeah. I just, right. uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, That's an interesting perspective, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I so just. This movie was made with $100 million, <laughs> which I find very easy to believe. Just yeah. give it, just give. No, it was. I'm looking at the budget. Give $2 million <laughs> of that to one dude to write a script. Yeah, I know. $2 million. <laughs> a scriptwriter. Exactly. I'm pretty sure a scriptwriter would. Give actually, $1 million. Would actually. Give 300000 If you put two great scriptwriters in a room and said, right, $2 million, yeah. all you have to do is with no. With no ship, ship me a great reprehensible script. actions. No, kill the other guy. I'm pretty sure one of them would murder the other one. Right, but I, two I, I think that the, the problem isn't, then isn't so much the, that they're not being paid enough or not being paid enough to find the great script writers. That is I, an issue. I really, though that is certainly yeah. an issue. I think also a, a big problem is that they're being given, okay, give us a, a great script mm. in six months. <laughs> yeah, and also I, I think what happens then, and I, I'm absolutely positive that it happened on this because I think it happens on most movies, um, is give us a great script in six months. They manage to do that, and then it goes through 35 people yeah. before it actually. Like, oh, gets can we to change set. this? Can we add that? Can yeah. we do this? And the, oh, add that. Uh, fuck what that other guy's done. Take that away. That's stupid. Compromise on this. This won't appeal to enough audience members. Yeah, so Which you know, really kind of defeats Peter the Jackson, point of having an expert in anything. Exactly. <laughs> Peter <laughs> Jackson has a writing credit on this movie. He has a yeah. script writing credit on this movie. I, but I don't he even wrote know this film in large part. I don't even know if he had a script writing credit on like Lord of the Rings I don't or think he did. Hobbit. It's, it's, I, it, I don't I'm know whether we're supposed to be impressed by that. Or certainly, he didn't. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so why the more, fuck <laughs> he had more to do with the scripting on this? And I really don't believe the way that Peter Jackson directs movies and how much yeah. he gives a shit about it. I don't... He doesn't feel like the kind of person that would be bad at... at, at or, or that wouldn't... That maybe, wouldn't pick up when he was leaving stuff out. Maybe he was heavily involved in, like, blocking out scenes or storyboarding. He and that might have been. Or, or, like, you know, they needed to know who, what characters to amalgamate or who to pull out yeah. or whatever. But still, he got a major script writing credit and maybe that was just yeah. flattery in the industry. Yeah, but. I, so there's, there's something called the Peter Principle, uh, mm. which is usually thrown around in business and the the idea is that if someone is good at their job, they get a promotion, <laughs> which typically involves doing more things that are totally different yeah. to the skill sets and they currently have. Exactly, <laughs> and if they are good at that job, they get promoted again, and this keeps on happening until they end up in a job that they are just incapable of performing yeah. at a very high level, <laughs> and that's where they stay. So yeah. everyone is promoted to their level of incompetence. Fuck right? yeah! And I think that that 
happens a lot. Yeah, and I mean, in this case, it's it's maybe working top downwards where someone, again, you know, Peter Jackson was given directing, a kind of directing credit for, or, or, or d- direction on the uh, Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit film. Like, so you can write and as so, well, right? And so, well, yeah. he owns the rights to this movie. And so he said, I'm putting together this project. I've decided I don't want to direct it. So I'm going to pick the director but I do want to be heavily involved with the scripting and the visual effects and whatever. So, yeah. you know, maybe he's kind of inserting himself where he actually doesn't, his skill doesn't lie because he feels like he's had enough about, or it could just be that, you know, other people wrote the script and he said, I've read this enough. I own the rights. Give me a screenwriting credit, you know, and yeah. which, which I'm sure happens too. <laughs> so, but like he's already an EP. Is, is he yeah, climbing? Like, what, what exactly <laughs> does an executive producer do? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so they, an, an EP helps to, um, they're basically project managing the whole film. Um, so the director is kind of project managing the set, whereas an, an executive producer is talking to, they're talking between the director and the editor. They're talking between the everyone in that previous group and the studio. Right. The studio is pressuring them. They're pulling together funding for the movie. They're generating interest. They're talking to the marketing team. Whereas the director is what mostly involved the in like creative decisions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the director yeah, okay. is the director is like the manager of creatively assembling the movie, and the producer is like the manager of actually getting the movie made or getting it put into cinemas. Yeah. Okay. And so like when so those people should have nothing to do with the creative <laughs> p- process yeah, because it's, it's logistics management. And that yeah, yeah, exactly. And and they have no often no creative bone in their entire body and directors who become producers that's a different story well, see, no, but it, it's like know. if you just pulled the best boy or the grip off and went okay yeah. you are now this character or th- this yeah. reminds me like, like, that's or a different skill set the best boy becoming the cinematographer yeah. where it's like <laughs> you were you were assembling the camera rigs great but you don't know how to construct a shot you know yeah. how to make a camera rig work. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like exactly. you might have seen you... a lot of shots being constructed, but are you good at it? This reminds D- me are you good at making that? No. Yeah. I listened to a podcast recently where they were interviewing like executives from different fields. Right. And they interviewed like someone who was high up doing some sort of production type work for Disney. And she was the person whose idea it was to do the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Right. And a whole bunch of other movies where I can't remember them, but they're big famous ones that you've heard. Um, like I may of Alliance I remember that it was Forrest Gump but like shit like that and like she says that often her ideas that would turn into movies like she'll be the one that started them and they'll be like concepts and they'll be like a successful movie would have this kind of person and these kinds of concepts and these kinds of themes who can we hire to creatively direct that which is a lot like the CEO saying our company needs to be going in this strategic direction and pass that message on down the line there's a creative and there, like there's a creative other drive. To actually, do that. Well, there's a creative drive behind that. Yeah, sure. But in, in the same way as like, I, I don't know, you, you know, you might want to hire, I don't know, you want to hire a graphic designer to do your logo, and you're like, I want, I want this kind of thing and this kind of thing, but I like the way you draw. You can have someone that'll yeah. be like, you know, I want this kind of thing and this kind of thing in a movie, and that's like my creative process is like coming up with this loose concept, mm. but I like the way that you direct. And I guess my, my issue is, right, so often a fresh pair of eyes on something is an inherently good thing, right? And so yeah. at what point is the better part, or at what point are they doing a positive, uh, are they performing a positive function by and just w- being a fresh pair of eyes? And at what point does it turn into a too many cooks scenario? Exactly. Yeah. And at what point are they trying to say, okay, you've asked me to have a look at this. I have this big idea. I'm also an important person. 
is that a good big idea that's irrespective of whether or not I'm a fresh pair of eyes. Yeah. So uh, I guess uh, we're, we're, we're speculating into what is very much a black box here. Yeah. Um, well, but I mean, in terms of what an EP is, that's w- someone who, who really should be only helping to the director to get the film made. And the director, you know, your EP is Peter Jackson. You're going to go to him and say, like, look, I'm struggling with this. How did you solve this problem when you came across it? But yeah. if that EP has never worked as a director before, I wouldn't be asking them that question. And it, may, it makes me think, I'm, I think I definitely see saw a whole bunch of big, long interviews with Peter Jackson about yeah. this movie. So I'd be curious to oh, see, right. and maybe he has actually disclosed how much creative control he oh, had over the movie. You, and how much, you didn't watch them. No, I didn't you watch them. You saw that they no, existed. This, this is one tier <laughs> worse than what we usually yeah, do. I saw There's a whole bunch engines. of YouTube videos videos that I watched and here I'm let me summarize them nah I saw the you thumbnails, saw the thumbnails. Um, <laughs> yeah I saw Mortal Engines as I was walking past <laughs> yeah, the I cinema I saw the poster <laughs> yeah. yeah but um, I would love to see how much creative control he had because it seems like he's definitely collaborated with this dude before mm. and just the end of the Christian Rivers has been his second unit director before yeah. for other yeah. Middle Earth stuff I think Yeah. Um, all in all though I think it's probably about about as much as we need to start talking about Mortal yeah. Engines yeah, yeah. Um, what was your favourite moment Favorite moments in the film? Ooh. Visually, I think uh, our first introduction to Anna Feng's airship. Right. I thought that was okay. visually spectacular. Yep. That was really um, cool. Though, actually, also in the same vein, right in the opening sequence when we first saw London literally eat another city that yeah. they were chasing. Yeah. And watching the, the front gates like open like the jaws of death around this small mining town. Yeah, seeing the uh, was, Union Jack was exactly was pretty spectacular. Yeah, yep. um, yep. to watch. I liked same. I I, oh, yeah, no, I liked the um in that the small German mining town. I liked when it was on the run and it had to speed up. It, all its buildings folded away and kind of yeah. te- like origamied together. And watching and I really the liked Transformers. Thing. You know what? Yeah. That had the same feeling to me as you know uh, this maybe is silly, but when the uh, at the start of the first Hobbit movie, when all twelve Hobbits get into the um, the Shire and Bilbo's home, yeah, and they yeah. start chucking around all the dinnerware. And it's like this crazy, like fucking, um, almost like a dance routine where they're throwing plates at each where other. They sing- they're literally singing in and they're like bit. spinning between each other and stuff. Yeah. And the camera's kind of like just dizzyingly whirling around, looking at all the stuff happen. I felt I got a very similar sensation from. Um, was that a positive sensation? I was vertigo, mate. All oh, right, that's <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I I wasn't a wild fan of that scene in The Hobbit, but I did quite right. like. Uh, that section we were just talking about. Yeah, I thought uh, that was really cool. Style. And then uh, I also, the, my other favorite scene, sorry, was um, the dogfight with all the different planes, and I thought that was really cool. Oh yeah, the you mean Star Wars? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it kind of reminded there me were direct of, references. It, yeah, it got uncomfortably <laughs> close. At well, points. no, it, it kind of reminded me of the scene at the end of the Last Jedi with uh, those speeders launching towards the AT-AT. Uh, thing on the salt planet. Yeah, okay. Where Luke, spo- spoiler alert for The Last Jedi, out of nowhere, where it turns out Luke's a hologram. That, it kind of reminded right. me of that scene a lot. Which I, I hated, that. by the way. Yeah. Oh, you, no, I didn't mind it. I, I didn't mind it. I just feel like that movie just made me feel stupid because, like, it's like, oh, obviously he's a hologram. He looks hotter. And he's like, <laughs> he's got the lightsaber that he broke and all that shit. Um, <laughs> I like the idea that he was sitting there. He's like, hmm. Me, but 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Little more off the waist. Yeah. Darker beard. Mm. Yeah. Way more muscles than that. Mm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, That's better. I feel like I once again haven't thought about a better than worse than, because I feel like the problem with that little better than worse than segment that I fuck myself with every week is I have to think of something that... See, I feel like better than is this easy. This is better than like- the live action remake of Avatar The Last Airbender. 
There you go. There's <laughs> a similarly yep. ambitious film that was adapted to I didn't see that. live action. Terrible. Well, it was fucking right. bad. Okay, right. And okay. it had similarly impressive visuals, okay. but an even worse piece of shit story. Right. And so, again, I think that's an example of M. Night Shyamalan yeah. doing fantastic films and then being given way more creative control than yeah. he ever should right. have Right, okay. So the official beef station, better than, worse than for this. I'm sure you'll agree with me here. This is better than... The Avatar remake, seven, yep. and it's worse than Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it had parts of it, elements that I felt I liked better than Lord of the yeah. Rings because I'm more of a, uh, like, if if you had to make me choose between steampunk and fantasy, like high yeah. fantasy, I would choose steampunk, Steampunk's but pretty that's awesome. pretty much the only... Well, we didn't yeah. ask, what was your favourite scene in the whole thing? I mean, I, I'm torn between the, that initial chase scene and the, the bit folding up. Um, right. I really liked the scene where uh, Shrike is locked in the metal box uh, on the in 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 the prison that walks yeah. on the ocean. I thought that was fucking sick. That was really cool. And then yeah. uh, that, is, it that was, is a thing that happens. It was film. almost immediately ruined by the fact that he chooses to blow up the jail yeah. that houses their major criminals. Well, that for, was, it was for no they reason. were really hitting us over the head with the hey Hugo Weaving's the bad guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. I, mean, I also didn't like the you know my fucking air city and they blew that up after like five minutes. Like it just yeah. happened every fucking yeah. time. Yeah. Um, it was like if you see a location. Buddy, you better not get attached yeah, you've, to that you've location. Got about, you've got about, like, start your timers, lads. You've yeah. got 120 seconds. Ah, like George... we've arrived at the next fireball to be. Yeah. <laughs> it's like George R. R. Martin is... um. Yeah, and his characters. <laughs> throwing yeah. darts at a, at a, at a map. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Except <laughs> every dart is hitting every place on this and map. And every dart is a little Michael Bay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, we head it to the next segment, boy? Yeah, sure. Now, is what this, are we, what is, are we calling this? Is this the one we're calling Mystery no, Meat? No, Mystery Meat so is let's, the posters. Let's, let's right, step into the mystery room aboard the beef station. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, but a different place. Well, we don't have a segment yet, but this is the one... Whose rind is it anyway? Andrew this time... Who's, <laughs> Andrew has found... <laughs> we're not, a, going uh, we're not doing that. <laughs> Andrew has found uh, a quote, some strange, obscure quote... I have. From the script of a, a film movie. that yep. we have both seen. That I would... I assume I, that we're familiar I'm with it. I'm like 99% sure you've seen this. It's I not, might even not, have seen it with you. It's not Seven, yeah. is it? No. Right. Okay. <laughs> no. Um, no. Is it Seven Psychopaths? No. Whew, it wouldn't it have been good seven, if I got it out seven, of nowhere? Seven pounds. All right, right. No, so, it would have ruined the whole segment. <laughs> seven years in Tibet. <laughs> Andrew's going to... Give me a clue. Doesn't have seven in the title. Okay? Salmon fishing in the Yemen. No. Right. Andrew's going <laughs> to say the quote. He's going to... we fucked this up twice now. You're yep. going to give me a hot or colder type thing. Yeah. Right? Yep. No hints until we go over a little bit. Jason and I got to go to the movie. What's the quote, boy? Okay. Um, the quote is, and you're both, you're both guessing, so feel free to jump yeah. in. Maybe we'll take turns. Authority should derive... Top gun. No. <laughs> no. Authority should derive from the consent of the governed, not from the threat of force. V for Vendetta. No. Shrek. You're closer. Authority should derive from the consent of the governed, not from the threat of force. Closer how? It's an animated movie? Yep. Hmm. It's released in the last 20 years? Yes. Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's Was it released after movie. the invention of computer animation? <laughs> yeah. Fuck yeah. No, me. That's a, that's a real sleeper line from <laughs> fucking Bambi. <laughs> you know when that deer gets shot? <laughs> Despicable me. No. No. Was that hotter or colder oh, than Shrek? I feel like you're you're hot as you need to be. Right. Well, fuck. I need. I, I, you're gonna have to give me a bit of a hint. Give me. Give me like one of the people that does the one of the okay, main voices in you, this movie. I'll give you a hint. The yeah. line is delivered by a female character. 
Authority the should leg, the derive. Lego movie. No. Right? Authority should Close. Actually, should that's, derive. That's, that's hotter than Shrek was the wording then. And derive is not a word that is commonly used in children's films. <laughs> <laughs> right. Authority should derive from the consent of the governed, not from the threat of force. No, I'm going to need another hint. Can you give me like a voice Are you voice close actor? with the Lego movie? The Lego movie. The Lego movie 2. No, no, no. <laughs> you were closer <laughs> than you were. You really fucked me the other time. The, uh, the Lego Batman movie. Uh, <laughs> no closer, but... Yeah. <laughs> Think a different franchise. Toy Story. Toy right Story. Franchise. That is a... What do you mean right franchise? It's Toy Story. But well, then not, we got it. But not Toy Story 1. Well, Toy Story 2. Can you tell me which character delivered that line? The Bo Peep. female one. No. No. Jesse. No. no. Well, we did. It's we from Toy Story 3. We, we okay. fucking did it. All right. It's Toy Story. I'm not guessing the it's number. It's Toy Story 3. Yeah. And that is... Barbie's line. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's yeah. brilliant. That's I like one. that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you remember it. If if um, I'm not going to do a Barbie impression, do but it. the point is that she's impressing Ken because he's a real dumb shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Barbie's point is yeah about uh, about the the source of authority. I so like that. Good little female empowerment. Hang on. Yeah. Uh, is that a legally blonde reference? Is it? Uh, I think it's a reference to Thomas Jefferson's words in the Declaration of Independence, but close. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would not be surprised to find that also in the script of Legally Blonde. Yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe that's next week's. Well, they're, get, they're getting sued by George Washington next week, so you know we'll find out. Yeah. All right. So yeah, Toy Story 3, you guys did get it fairly quickly. <laughs> Fuck yeah. I got one um, item... Just a little bit of an expansion on something that we talked about last week, sure. which is related to uh, people dredging up Kevin Hart's old tweets. Yeah. Well, I think, like in terms of, um, in terms of the perspectives that we have on this show right now, we're we're three pretty straight white dudes sitting in a room talking about this stuff, and these are yeah. issues that we don't have any right to speak with an informed yep. perspective on. Mm. And I saw a really interesting thread on Twitter that was talking about this, and it was uh, Greg Hogben, someone who identifies as, as gay, and he said that um, one key difference, so, like, lots of comedians make jokes, and, and one uh, a guy called Nick Cannon dredged up tweets from Amy Schumer, Sarah Silverman, and, yeah. and Chelsea Handler um, that also used slurs against homosexual people, yeah. and he said, these feel different because uh, Amy Schumer, Sarah Silverman um, are sort of LGBTI allies and have been you know, for, for as long as they possibly um, could be. Well, and then, in, in, just in that they're outspoken yeah, in their really defense of the community or something? Yeah, and, de- right, and okay. um, kind of defenders of, of um, I mean, you know, in the sense of what being an ally yeah. is where you, you are vocally in support of a cause, right? Sure. Um, whereas he said the thing that, that is different about Kevin Hart's tweets is that he's never had that public presence of being a, a, a vocal ally. Yeah. Um, and he says, like, he, he has this really interesting comparison where he says, do you remember the first time you saw someone get punched in real life where there's no, like, thwack, like a sound effect in a movie, there's no dramatization of it? Um, th- you could just feel that there's a kind of, like, very realistic violence behind it. Um, he says right. that to him as a gay person is how Kevin Hart's tweets feel okay. because right. he doesn't feel that there's the rationalization of, you know, all of, um, all of Schumer's, uh, tweets that use the word and Silverman's tweets that use the word were, were obviously, and probably in poor taste, using the word as a joke. Really, yeah, it right. was a bad joke, but it was a joke. And one of the reasons that, that gives them a little bit of license to have even tried to make is that, that poor joke is that they had like a history that. of defending mm. the cause and yeah. being in clear support of it and that this slur was used 
in the backdrop or in front of the backdrop of a clear right. um, well, stance of support. And whereas Kevin Hart doesn't have that same established precedent. Yeah. And I thought it was a really interesting perspective to include where someone who actually, you know, has some sort of experience um, or experience perspective in this is saying, yeah. actually, for me, these do feel different. And I guess, like, while I still have this opinion that we can't really go back and, and dredge these things up from 10 years ago because societal norms change, ethics, people's ethical perspectives change. I thought it was an important clarification to offer where, um, you know, I hadn't considered that, that um, how, how someone has carried themselves up to this point is an important thing to, to really take into account. Yeah, of course. Um, especially when someone who is gay is, is giving you this information. Um, I yeah. think it's an important thing to consider. And, yeah, and, and I agree. But I also think that what we had talked about... Um, before was just the idea that he he mentioned and I, I again I don't know whether he did apologize when it was first dredged up ages ago yeah. but just the idea that it's ten years ago and he's a different person and he's apologizing now and like it's definitely a shitty thing to do but yeah. I also on the other side of things kind of object to the idea of dredging up someone's past from ten years ago regardless of what it is I do too even I just thought- even if he I don't know maybe not even if he didn't apologize but like he if he's a different person now and he sort of like. Fair, like he he may have meant it at the time, but I mean, mm. yeah. ten years is a long time. Yeah, that's still exactly. less forgivable. It's on a gradient, you of know? course. And yeah. and I I stand by what I said last week about like not. I don't think it's right to make people apologize per brand, but yeah. um, but I, I you know again I I feel like it's just important to include other people's of course, voices yeah. in this, and I don't have um a better way at this very point in time to do that other than reading out something that I saw on Twitter, which is a good place for people to voice their opinions. Right, okay. So, yeah, just thought I'd um, offer that clarification on okay. the issue. Great. So, yeah. <laughs> Once again, thanks for, thanks for bringing down the tone at the end of the podcast. Well, I don't well, think it's uh, necessarily in, negative. In thing. other yeah. Twitter news today, uh, I believe that uh, Trump misspelt... <laughs> Trump misspelt the word smoking twice in one tweet. Oh, I saw that. <laughs> yeah, so we should uh, all, I believe, be aware of the dangers of smocking. Smocking. Yes. <laughs> uh, Okay, um, well, should we head it to the news? Yeah, let's do it. All right, I hate this bit. God, it's so loud. Yeah, that is piercing. It's really loud. Beef Bulletin. Leonardo DiCaprio has been ordered to hand Marlon Brando's 1954 Oscar over to the police. Oh, shit, why? What? Leonardo, Did he steal it? Leonardo DiCaprio has been... Imp- <laughs> no, he didn't, he I'm assuming he bought he it. He didn't fucking OJ himself. You can't I'm sure buy them. Yeah, we, we a, had this in a, yeah. a news story recently. Oh, yeah. You, that you have to sell them back to the Academy for a dollar. You have to offer to. And just see what they say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, but, but didn't that get put in place because a bunch of people sold them? <laughs> yeah, there um, were like two that were sold or something, yeah. There are only some, two Oscars that have ever been some sold. Some Malaysian right. business dude named Joe Lowe <laughs> has been arrested on charges of committing fraud and he once gifted DiCaprio the Oscar um, won by Marlon Brando in 1954. Sure. So, hang, so how did he get it? Uh, maybe there's like a, um, I think there was a year's cutoff where anything after that year you can't buy them anymore. Right. Um Marlon Brando's Oscar must have fetched a pretty penny. Yeah, that's I can a pretty fortune. That's yeah. What was it for? Um, oh, th- this dude. Oh, Fifty-four. Some boring. Uh, it doesn't shit, say, maybe. but th- this dude had like. Um, I don't care. It was a, in the fifties. <laughs> a two hundred. Oh no, that this Joe Lowe guy had like a two hundred fifty million dollar yacht and like Van Gogh and Picasso paintings and all sorts of stuff. He got it all fraudulently. I apparently bought the Oscar. Um, Everyone that's that rich gets everything fraudulent. from a film memorabilia dealer for six hundred thousand dollars. That's cheaper than I would have guessed. Um, yeah, that's actually, a lot cheaper than. But I But the guessed. government has the right to the purchase because yeah. it was all fraudulent shit. 
So uh, no, I thought that was a, a story close to Beef so, Station Heights. So are go. they going to? Uh, is the government going to? Or is the Academy going to uh, give DiCaprio his one dollar? For the value <laughs> of that. Well, now see, it, it only needs to be an offer to sell for one dollar. So, yeah. and actually, they don't need to. Uh, they don't need to accept the offer in so, this particular so case. You reckon they will repossess it without offering DiCaprio a dollar? Yeah, I reckon he won't get shit. Yeah. Oh, you'll love this one, boy. Here's the next headline. <laughs> the solo. Do you think DiCaprio is just standing in his house sometimes, like <laughs> that being like? No, I, I reckon he's standing on his Oscar. yacht. <laughs> Yeah, I like the idea that he had that Oscar before he got his own Oscar. DiCaprio, <laughs> well, he would have probably, unless he bought it within the last year. Yeah. Um, because like he's actually a pretty, uh, oh, who knows? But like he, outwardly facing, he's a pretty good guy. Like he's a yeah. UN yeah. ambassador for climate change. I like a lot of what he does in the public persona. So I don't necessarily see him as being a person that 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 like flaunts their ridiculous wealth. But then he also fucking owns like a Marlon Brando Oscar that clearly it's, it could be something along the lines of like Marlon Brando was always his idol. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so sort of when he got the opportunity, he yeah. was like, Of course I, could have I want that one. Right. But yeah, does he have like <laughs> did he have a cabinet with like two <laughs> slots and just one yeah. was Brando's and the other one was just empty for a really long time? <laughs> Oh man! One um, fucking day, Milo. One fucking day. <laughs> uh, here's another one. This is another Acad- Academy Awards related uh, story that's going to really tick you off, Andy boy. Excellent. Um, it's going to start like you don't care, but it'll build. Just, just stay okay, with me. I'm ready. The original score to Solo, the Han Solo film, has Here been disqualified go. from consideration in this year's Oscars because Great. somebody forgot to submit it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, really? And there's, there's a few other films. Was that... I responsible for submitting that <laughs> nomination tonight? <laughs> Fuck man. Um, a few, a few other films have also had their best original score or like best original Scott uh, song disqualified from consideration right. this year that are quite prominent. Oh, Green, am I going to like some? Green Book isn't considered for whatever... And they're all kind of different reasons. But and like, this so, is only for their scores? For the scores, okay. yeah. So for, for the scores... Um, oh, maybe it's... Fuck, I hope it's not all of them. Um, but yeah. What? Oh, no, 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 first round... This is just because... It's because the first round voting for scores has just started. You've got uh, so, have a hook here, Oscar. Read yeah, the damn right, list. Sorry, right, Jesus. So Green Book, not being considered. That's got quite a bit of best picture buzz. Yeah, the Other okay. Side of the Wind is a Netflix original that um, it won't be considered. And last, but certainly not least, Mandy will not be considered for best original score this year. Fuck! <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mandy was apparently released on video on demand services before it completed its like qualifying cinematic... Just, uh, run just to inform and so, you. As a result, uh, the academy listener. never considered it. Just to inform you, dear listener, Andrew looks absolutely <laughs> fucking that, stricken that, by that this news. Regardless of what the other entrants are, that probably deserves to win. Yeah, no, it won't, it won't win because it's not even being considered. Fuck! Voting for that Wait, finish- Was that the same deal like someone just forgot to submit the no, damn in, thing? No, in that case, there's some sort of technical rule where um, it was disqualified because it was released on video on demand services before it completed its theatrical run. Some fucking and for whatever that reason, like a some dude at the Oscars fucking scratched yeah. his yeah. left nut instead of scratching his right, and so it's a one mistake. of the greatest pieces of musical art in this fucking year has been disqualified. Yeah. And so, for, for example, it. the Netflix one was disqualified. Absolute I think shit. it's this. This story is mostly interesting because it gives you an insight into what the rules are behind this shit. So, mm. like the net, uh, the the Netflix one. I think it's a Netflix one. Um, the other side of the wind. Uh, the score for that. Um, oh right, no, sorry. So it's the original score for the long-awaited release of Orson Welles' last film. Um, that wasn't released. Right. Uh, sorry, that what that was disqualified because the score 
used a lot of like existing music as source music yep. that he kind of modified and mixed in with his own stuff. Which, so, which is a huge thing in film music. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it says, the considerable amount of source music he did not compose, mostly songs heard in the background sequences during the film's lengthy party sequence, um, weren't original and therefore it's not considered. So I, mean, I think that story's interesting mostly because it gives you an idea about what kind of... Um, what kind of considerations go into play with this? Yeah, I mm. guess. Yeah, but I'm just upset. Um, <laughs> uh, next, next headline here. I'll show you. I'll show you guys this picture. Sorry, listeners, you're missing out. The uh, first, first. Don't tell me anything about it. Don't describe the picture in any way. We're just going to talk about this. <laughs> All right, in a yeah. Jason, check this out. <laughs> on, first yeah, pictures from the live, kid. the live action Kim Possible movie has been released. Okay. You guys <laughs> really are missing out right now. Get on your computers. Google so that's it. that's going to be another another one that we're definitely going to have to go watch. Is the first this is 100 <laughs> porn parody quality. <laughs> Aesthetics. It really is. Like, I'm, like, yeah. like my, my brain is seeing this being like, oh, yeah, this fits into the schema of all the other poorly costumed, it, poorly haired, wigged. Other than the fact that Ron shit. is the fucking gawkiest, curly hairiest, least fuckable dude I've ever seen. It looks like um, the lighting has been rigged up by a high school like drama yeah. class. Yeah. <laughs> and I know because I rigged up several lighting sets yeah. that yielded that effect. <laughs> Doesn't look good. Yeah, no, it looks terrible. Um, Oh yeah, right. There you go. Um, so that's um, <laughs> that's a that's a little, little tease for the Kim Possible movie. Here's another one. A story close to Beef Station Hearts. We promised we'd keep you up to date on every scaric of information about oh, yeah. this film. Here we go. Here we go. Sonic Here we the go. Hedgehog. Go. Sonic the Hedgehog's first post has been announced, baby. Oh yep. yeah, show me. And it's a motion. Yeah. <laughs> It's a Fuck, motion yeah. poster. So it's like... <laughs> no, no, a motion picture, mate. <laughs> oh, I believe it's, it's called cool. a film. <laughs> it's like a fully animated but poster. One of those flicks, you see. Um, yeah, they're calling it a, a motion poster. No, wait, a motion yeah. picture. <laughs> it's yeah. a, it is a gif. Yeah, so it's yeah. a gif. It's a big gif. But the first thing that... Uh, I'm um, sorry, Oscar. What's Andrew, the URL for that? Please pronounce that no, word. Oh, that the URL said. is... Uh, is that devi- deviant art? <laughs> yeah, he's got the most. Oh, you're looking up some other shit, mate. <laughs> so Sonic's got the most well-defined fucking thighs on this yeah. whole thing. My favorite part about this We're poster, still on though, the deviant art riff. <laughs> my favorite part about this whole poster, though, by the way, is if you look at the top, it says it's from the producer of Fast and yeah. the Furious. What's this supposed to tell? It's like, no, this guy has experience with fast shit. You're I in safe hands. Yeah, like they, yeah, they, yeah. they, they made another <laughs> film. And also, I don't even know. I don't know if this is the first time it's been announced. But this thing isn't coming out until fucking August 2019. Yeah, it's a long time to wait. Oh my Maybe god, such long. a slog. We might be able to cover it for like the hundredth episode or something. Yeah. In fact, no, that's not how that's not how time. That's works, not how weeks work. You know, no. um, you know, maybe episode fucking sixty or something. Look, look forward to it. Beef station. That is listeners. how weeks work. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, Avengers. The, the new Avengers uh, trailer has been dropped. It's been viewed 289 million times in its first 24 hours. Jesus. That blasted the previous record that was also set by an Avengers film. And, and what's behind that was the Lion King trailer. It was just released the other week. The Lion King trailer got 224 million views in the first 24 hours. So it's just blasted that by 50 million within a week. Um, it's called Avengers Endgame, and it comes out April 26, 2019. So hopefully that means after this film, they throw all those characters into a black hole. I could, I could do Fingers with crossed. that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I won't be seeing it either way. So and the trailer, I mean, no, y'all enjoy. Kind of fucking have to at this point. But yeah, whatever. yeah. It's not um, like you run a podcast about films. Yeah, kicking <laughs> and screaming, <laughs> yeah, kicking and screaming. 
That's right. Um, and I, th- I think that's probably all the time we have left for a beef station this week. Thank you so much for joining no, no, us, No, 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 no. The, the airlock, no. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. Get, 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 get away from <laughs> <me>. <laughs> Lock it. Type in the code. Yeah. All right, boy, what are we doing next week? Uh, uh, probably, <laughs> probably widows, as I told people last week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Oscar. Andrew. (laughs) That was Jason. Jason. (laughs) That was Jason. Thanks for joining us for another week. Have a great great week.